This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. I'm Jim Mohart. Today I'll be reading Matthew 3, 1 through 17. That can be found on page 808 in the Pew Bible. <clears throat> Matthew 3, 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I baptize you with water. Let's see if I can get that mixed up. No. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and do not come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Pray with me one more time. Holy Spirit, now would you speak to us? We ask that you would open up your word in ways that change us, that transform us, that comfort us, that instruct us, that rebuke us, that actually lead us towards righteousness. And, and I, I just acknowledge that my friends are in lots of different places in the room. So would you help now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so last week we started in this passage and we began to just have a conversation about repentance. And what we noticed in the passage was there are a couple different kinds of people that are coming to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet and he does what Old Testament prophets do. They, they remind God's people of who God is and what it means to be related to him in the covenant. They warn God's people of their rebellion and what it means for them to turn their hearts away from God. And they invite them back to the heart of God. And so that's what John the Baptist has been doing. What we see there in verse 6 is that many people were coming to be baptized and they were confessing their sin. In the very next scene, there's these religious leaders that come, and they don't get affirmation or applause. They actually get called snakes. And he says, you're coming with all kinds of weird motives and things that are more in line with you proving yourself and earning something than they are receiving. And we just talked about the fact that it's possible for us to go through motions that look like repentance, but may actually have our hearts 
far away from God. So the difference between like a legalistic repentance and a, a gospel repentance, you might say. Actually, in the newsletter this week, I put an article in there that just kind of gives some more thoughts on that. And, and the idea that the closer we get to God, the more we realize our hearts are broken, we, we actually see in John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is this prophet who's preaching, and then he encounters Jesus. And rather than going, all right, great, the superstar is here, he stops and says, well, I have a need for you. And it reminds us of a passage like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God, and then he stops and just says, like, woe is me. And we own the idea that actually repentance is a lifestyle for a Christian. It's not as if the older you get and the more mature you get, the less you need grace or the less you need Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul would, at the end of his life, call himself the chief of sinners, saying he's actually more aware of his brokenness and sin, which is what I think John the Baptist embodies for us. And he sees an increased understanding of God's holiness and an increased understanding of his own sinfulness. And rather than leading him to shame, it actually moves him towards Jesus, asking for Jesus to do something for him, which I think is an amazing model for us, that we actually, the longer we go, the more aware we are, we actually feel more in touch with our sinful hearts, and we have a better understanding of what it means to actually need grace. And that's really different than a religious repentance that we said last week was more concerned about like, the avoidance of consequences. It was more concerned with this reputation. It was trying to manage and minimize things. It was really, really concerned with the short term and getting out of the tension of that rather than long-term transformation. It had more to do with like fear than it did trust and more concerned with like their own identity than the actual relationship. And Maybe that sounds familiar where you've repented and had someone repent to you and it didn't actually feel like it brought the relationship close. There's, there's ways that we could bring our heart to somebody else or to God that actually don't bring us close. That's kind of where we were last week. And, and I want to just move into that a little bit more and then talk about kind of why Jesus was actually baptized. And we should define a couple of words that I've been using. One of these is repentance. Well, like what, what is repentance? And it's different than saying you're sorry, I guess. We were kind of articulating. There's a couple of words in the Old Testament that are used about repentance, and I won't try to pronounce them to you, but, but one of them has the sense of, of turning, going from one direction and turning around. It kind of embodies that idea, like I was going this way, and repentance means I stop going this way, and I begin to go this way. It's an Old Testament idea. Another one is, is a, the word that would have a sense of like changing your mind. Actually, there's a couple passages that say that God uh, relents or repents. And so we're not saying that he actually had sinned and had to own that, but he changed his mind when it came to his decree of judgment. And he said, I'm going to come and judge Nineveh. And it says that because they repented, God, God relented. He changed his mind. That word is to, to change your mind, to be intending to do one thing and then do something different. And in the New Testament, there's another word that kind of embodies both of those that has this idea of going from something to something else. That's what repentance is. And it has to do with how we think. And for the Bible, thinking is not just ideas you have. It embodies all of who you are. It comes from the heart. It's all your affection. It's all your love. It's your worship. It's not just categories and propositions. It's the way you see the world. So repentance is really about changing of direction, and it's about changing of your mind. So that's what repentance is. And it's interesting that we see um, John say to people, hey, I want you to actually bear fruits that are in keeping with repentance. This is not just a head game that we're playing. It actually plays itself out in our life. So there's a turning from sin and a turning to God. Wayne Grudem says this way, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it, right, turn from it, and to walk in obedience to Christ. So repentance, we see, actually has an object. 
It's not just into a vacuum. It's not just saying sorry for sorry's sake. It actually is aimed at going one way and then turning back towards God is what biblical repentance is. And then we should define baptism. So baptism is a symbol of that. Baptism doesn't wash our sins away. Baptism doesn't have the magic. It's not like a, a voodoo or something like that that we do. It's a, it's a symbol, much like a wedding ring is a symbol of a covenant that someone has made, that outward symbol of this repentance. So we see that in verse 6 of chapter 3. They were baptized as they were confessing their sins. They wanted to show outwardly what was happening on the inside. That's what baptism is about. Right? So our denominational faith statement, part of it says this. Says uh, baptism is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. So baptism is a declaration. Baptism is saying something. Baptism says, Hey, I have already turned from this thing that I was pursuing owned that it was wrong, changed my mind, and then turned back the other direction. So repentance and baptism. If that's what those are, then we should ask, then why in the world is Jesus baptized? Because our theology says, and the Bible declares that Jesus was sinless and perfect. So if baptism is a sign of repentance and Jesus didn't have to repent, then what's going on as Jesus actually pursues baptism? And the fact that John the Baptist has a little bit of trouble with this is, no, no, hey, wait, you should baptize me, not, not me. You tease us up to go, this is a little bit unusual. There's something deeper going on than just the normal symbol of this is the outward way I reflect what's happening inside like you and I would do. So for a human, for a follower of Jesus, for a person, repentance is looking back to what Christ has done and saying, I need that for the atonement of my sin to make me right with God. And then I want to follow that and express that with baptism. But for Jesus, he's not looking back to past sins. He's actually looking forward to the cross where he would die for our sins and make a way for us to actually be atoned for. So, so with that introduction, what I want to do is just say, all right, real quick, why was Jesus baptized? And then ask, what does that point us to? And then spend the bulk of our time saying, how do we apply that? If that's what's going on there, what difference does that make to us on a January morning in 2021? All right, so first, why was Jesus baptized? We see the answer in verse 15. Look with me there. As he comes down into the water and John sees him, and we see from other gospel accounts that John knew who Jesus was. Even in the gospel of John, he'll declare, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John knew who Jesus was. And actually, Luke tells us they were cousins or second cousins or something like that. I think Mary and his mom are cousins. Or what, I always get confused on those family trees. But they're, they're, like, they would have been at family reunions together is kind of what I'm saying. So they, they knew each other. And so John the Baptist sees him and he says, Oh, no, no, no way. You're not going to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And then Jesus says, hey, let it be so this way, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is saying there's something about him being baptized that points to something bigger. It points to the fulfillment, or that's a key word, of all righteousness. And so scholars debate a lot about what this means, and probably because it's really significant. Probably because it's not just a thin little meaning or just one thing. When Jesus came into our world and took on flesh and died in our place, there are massive implications for that, right? It's not just the forgiveness of your sins so you can be free and be forgiven, right? It's about adoption and it's about the resurrection. It's about the next life. It's about freedom. It's about you being renewed from the inside out, right? So there's a lot going on in the idea that Jesus came to be in our world. But he says, I came to actually be baptized as the beginning of the fulfillment of 
of all righteousness. So, so this is a, a theologian says this, baptism itself doesn't accomplish anything. It's an external symbol of an internal response, an outward ritual demonstrating an inward reality. That's what we've said. So the baptism of Jesus, it would seem, is to be an outward symbol of several really important things. If it's a symbol, then we ask, what's it a symbol of? And here's the first one. It's a symbol of Christ's identification with us as humans. We talked as we were going through the birth narrative, this beautiful mystery and amazing miracle of God becoming human. And Hebrews says when he did that, he was able to, to die for all of our sins. He, he lived the human life that we should have lived and died the sacrificial death that humans deserve to die. He came to identify with us fully. And Hebrews says because he did that, then when we pray, we have this sympathetic high priest who knows what it's like to be in our shoes. And we even named kids. He knows what it's like to, to be a kid. He knows what it's like to grow up. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to, to lay in bed at night and let your mind wander. He knows what it's like to get instruction from your mom and dad and wonder what you should do about that. He knows what it's like to have siblings. He, he knows what that's like. And so he came to identify with us. And then this baptism is a key moment where publicly he's identifying with sinners. Not because of his own sin, but saying, I actually came here to give you my righteousness because you needed to be baptized I'm coming to actually live the life you should have lived. And he starts with that declaration. So the Bible teaches us that Jesus was righteous and he gives us his full righteousness and takes our unrighteousness on the cross. There's an exchange that happens. So maybe write down these. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is Jesus, perfect and sinless. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be before God and declared righteous. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one, the perfect one, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. So the New Testament says this is always the plan of God, to place upon the Messiah the sins of the world so that we could actually have our sins atoned for. In a passage like Isaiah 53, this is just so beautiful in its description of a suffering servant who was standing in our place, and it's by his stripes that we're healed. But listen to verse 11 of Isaiah 53. It says this, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. So the promise of the Messiah was to stand in our place. And so Jesus starts fulfilling righteousness by doing that, by coming to identify with it. It's an identification with humanity, not an admission of guilt and sin because he had none, but it's a way for him to say, I'm going to stand in your place. So I'm going to send an article to you that has like five reasons why Jesus was baptized. I was struck by this paragraph, though. He comments that in the fourth gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist makes his declaration about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he just says, hey, that probably should be like at the crucifixion, right? That's where it happened. But John says it at his baptism. At his baptism, John the Baptist says, this is the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. And he says, though he had no sin, Jesus identified with sinners. He said, in effect, I will live where they live. I will go through what they go through. I will not be above them. I will be with them. I will take the cleansing waters as one of them. I am on the side of sinners. Why was Jesus baptized? To fulfill all righteousness so he could take our place in our unrighteousness and give us his. 
there's lots of reasons, but here's the second one I want to focus on today. It's actually an anticipation of the cross. He identifies with sinners, and he's foreshadowing his own death. So in Mark chapter 10, as there's this power struggle between the disciples, and they want to sit at his right and at his left, Jesus asks, hey, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Which is a clear reference to the cross. He's saying that baptism actually represents my sacrificial death threats. When we get baptized, we're saying we're trusting that. And Jesus actually is foreshadowing for us in his baptism. If it's about death and being made alive, that he's going to actually die for us. So the baptism of, of a believer looks back on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And for Jesus, it looks forward to his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a symbolic demonstration in advance of what we're going to experience. Right? And John the Baptist says that this is a pointer. This is something that we actually need. And he tells us that Jesus is going to come and not just get baptized like everybody else. He's going to come and he has a baptism that's from the Holy Spirit and, and with fire. There's something very different going on. So Jesus comes to be baptized, not because he was sinful. It's not where his adoption happened. It's not where he became God. He comes to identify with sinners and to foreshadow the way he was going to make sinners forgiveness possible. Okay, so, so what do we do with that? Or what does that point to? I simply want to say this. What that gives you is an incredible amount of hope that what you most needed as you struggle, Christ has already accomplished for you. When you're wrestling with things and you pray and you figure out, man, I'm not sure what to do, the fact that Jesus died in your place, that he identified with your full humanity, and he said, I'm willing to go and give you my righteousness for your unrighteousness, means when you pray... You don't have to cross your fingers and squint your teeth and uh, squint your eyes and grit your teeth and wonder, like, is it actually going to work this time? Because Christ has already accomplished it. Uh, maybe this will help as an illustration. I thought about, like, um, maybe when you're young, uh, if you ever bounce a check. Kids, there used to be these things called checks. It's this piece of paper, and you would actually write your name and some numbers on it, and you'd give it to somebody, and they would give you stuff. Uh, they would give you money at the bank, or they would, you could purchase things with these pieces of paper. I was actually at Walmart a couple days ago. And this dude in front of me actually wrote a check. And everyone is just inflamed with anger behind me. It was a, it was a crazy deal. But, but a check was representing, hey, I've got funds somewhere else. This piece of paper is representing that. I'm going to give you this piece of paper, and you're going to give me according to the amount that I wrote on it. Right? And I remember being a young husband um, early on in marriage, and like, things were tight. And there were times where I would write a check and say, hey, you can't cash this until Thursday. Like, I'm giving this to you on Monday, but hold on, there's no money in that account until Thursday. If you had that kind of experience, and, and maybe confessions like that, right? You're going like, I really want this to be forgiven, but I'm not quite sure I have enough to kind of make it all the way across for God to be acceptable, or God, for myself to be acceptable to God. Okay, take that bank account illustration. What happened on the cross is Jesus made a massive eternal deposit in your account so that when you write a check of confession, the funds are already there. The thing that you're going like, man, I've done this so many times. I've said this so many times. Is there going to be any grace left for me? The truth is, in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, because he identified with us, that account is full forever for you. There's nothing that you'll do or think about doing in the future or things you've done in the past that that account can't cover. Not because you keep adding to it and you're saving really well and you've built up that account. It has nothing to do with you except your trust in the one who would take your place on the cross that you identify with in his death. And he identifies with you in his own righteousness so that you can be free. The implications of this is that for humans who trust in Jesus... 
There is grace and forgiveness for you, which means it's the end of shame. It's the end of trying to pay back God or other people. It's the end of arrogance and pride when you rank yourself against somebody. It's, it's the end of fear. It's the beginning of joy. It's the beginning of you actually receiving grace from God in real ways that begin to actually change you. So, so just think for a moment what normally happens when you confess. When you confess what normally takes place in your heart. And uh, there's some wallowing probably. There's some groveling and some bargaining. And there's some promises that you're going to make. Hey, what if you knew you didn't have to cross your fingers when you wrote that check? All the money was already there because Christ had died in your place. It gives you confidence and boldness and joy that actually leads to humility. That's what it's pointing to, which I think is so beautiful. For Jesus to come and stand in our place means the wages of our sin that we deserve from Romans chapter 3. He actually paid for and didn't just clear our account to zero. He deposited his Righteous. It's a double exchange. He takes our debt and gives us his eternal surplus so that we can be forgiven and free. And that doesn't make us have a license to sin. It doesn't make us be um, uh, like uh, ungrateful and, and squander that. So don't think trust fund kid who goes, it's fine. I got tons of money back. Here. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's not the posture of somebody who's received this kind of transaction. It actually brings about a humility and a joy. And can I just say this? For the times you have acted like a trust fund kid and you've squandered this, there's grace even for that. The times where you high-handedly sin saying, I'm going to do this now and I'll ask for forgiveness later. When you did that kind of thing, which just thumbed your nose to a holy God, there's even grace and mercy for that. For what happened last night, what happened this week, for what happened when you were in college, for, for kids, what happens that you haven't told your parents about yet, in that place there's already grace and forgiveness for that. So, so Jesus didn't have to do that, but what he did makes it possible for us. He didn't have to be baptized for his own sin. He was baptized to identify with our sin. So, so then we just ask, then how do we apply that? What, what do we do? How does it look to engage with this? What does it mean to write a check, so to speak? And if repentance is turning from something and turning towards something, then what actually does it look like? And if you were to Google like steps towards repentance, just imagine you'd done that this week on like a Thursday as you're studying for a sermon. What you'll see is like eight keys for repentance and five ideas for a way to make yourself right with God and three easy steps to cleansing. And you'll get all these different formulas, right? If you Google books, you'll get lots of different ideas. So it's not so much that there's one template. Even the Psalms, there's 150 examples for us of prayer. We read one and two, uh, two of them today, right? One of how to pray when the nations are crumbling and one how to pray for my sin. But, but there's a lot about all those themes. So there's not just one idea or one template that we follow. God, God is giving us a kind of a framework. So don't think formula and where we're about to go as I give you some like steps. Think a, think a framework. And then and have in your mind, if you can switch back and forth from me with, um, with checkbooks, which is hilarious. Like who uses that anymore? To trampolines, another really culturally relevant moment, right? So when's the last time you were on a trampoline? Thank you. All right, so can you just remember like as a kid or maybe you watched a movie sometimes that a trampoline in it? Everyone knows what a trampoline is, even if you can't remember what it's like to bounce on a trampoline. I want to use a trampoline illustration because when it comes to repentance, there's a way that a deep bounce, like getting more honest, going deeper than the surface, actually brings a higher 
bound. So, so now let me just kind of be, be careful. If I'm saying it's going one direction and turning another one, can we add like a dimension of going down and then coming back up? So, so I'm actually going to do this on the steps. Last week I, I tried to uh, talk about my own insecurities and I was like stepping back and going, and that leads to this. And, that comes, and then I bumped into the microphone. Do you remember that? And I was like, oh, I guess that's the end of my sin. I'm going to go forward back this way. So I'm going to go steps this time. And what I'm going to do is say, what does it look like for us to be going one direction and then turn another direction? And what I want, want you to understand is the deeper you go in repentance, the, the, the higher you go in experiencing not the actual forgiveness metrics, but your understanding of that forgiveness. The forgiveness is there. You will die with sins that you didn't repent of because you didn't even know. Our forefathers were looking back on our country going, I mean, there's lots of sins that we just tolerated as a people. People didn't even know that they were sinful, right? That's still true for you today. So I'm not saying you better get really, really, really deep so you actually experience forgiveness. What I'm saying is you better kind of have the courage to keep going in your heart because if you will, that deeper bounce into a trampoline will have you bounce up towards joy and freedom. You don't get more money in your account the deeper you go. All the money's there. Does that make sense? But you experience it the more fully you actually engage. Okay, so, so let me just kind of physically say this. And kids, I hope this is helpful. Uh, if, you're, if you're saying this direction is sin, or I've been going this way. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's fear. It's lust. It's all the things we read about in the scriptures that are, are, are demanding payment that actually bring us a separation from God. Right? These are not just small character flaws. Sin, the scriptures say, is death to us. It's so severe that Christ himself had to die. Um, so, so what's the beginning of repentance? Well, the beginning of repentance is simply stopping and owning the fact that this is wrong. Just, just a simple acknowledgement that the first step in repentance is stopping and acknowledging, hey, what I'm doing is out of bounds. A holy God has said, don't do this. And then as I turn, I want to head back. So as I turn, my next step is to say, hey, it wasn't just the outward act. I want to go a little bit deeper to where that came from. I was angry. I said words, but it wasn't just the cuss word that was sinful. That cuss word comes from somewhere. So the next step is actually to acknowledge it comes from somewhere. There's a motivation that's deeper. And if I could be even more honest, what I realize is below that, as I'm turning, is actually a love for something, a desire for something, a longing for something, a worship for something, what the Bible would call idolatry. So, so I'm, I've been going one way in an action, but that action isn't by itself. It actually comes from a motivation, and that motivation is rooted in a love. Can I repent of that love? I love to be seen. I love to be famous. I love to be secure. I love for people to admire me. I love, I love comfort. I love power. I love control. To name the love behind the motivation that leads to the action. Right, so we're, we're now we're, our knees are deep into repentance. And as we get to the middle place, the pivot moment, rather than saying, okay, now I'm good, you turn actually to Jesus. If I've been going this way and I'm kind of moving like this, when I hit to the center point, I'm actually trusting in Christ alone. Repentance for the Christian is not just saying I'm sorry. It's turning to something. It's saying what Christ did on the cross is enough to forgive me of my sin. It's a pivotal moment for you because you're tempted to go towards shame and paying back. You could place kind of that momentum somewhere else. Gospel repentance places the momentum of the love that you've had for other things on Jesus and lets him pay for that. It's a Christ-centered, a Jesus-centered understanding of repentance. Has this pivotal moment where you're looking at Jesus and you take a deep breath and you acknowledge that he's already died for that. 
the action and the motivation and the love behind it, you ask him to forgive you. Jesus, thanks for dying on the cross for that. And then as I'm turning away from that thing that had this allure, right? And it had this allure because I worshiped it. I needed it. And it motivated me. And it came with actions that I'm really used to doing. As I walk back down that road and I get to Jesus, I'm saying, hey, Jesus, you are better. You are the one who actually satisfies. And so I begin to turn to Jesus by acknowledging that he is the fulfillment of all my hopes and dreams, of all that I long for. I used to want power and control and approval, and now I get to look to Jesus to be the one who gives that to me. Not that I get to be amazing, but he has everything I need to make me okay. So I'm turning back to him, and I acknowledge what he's done, and I thank him for that. And then as I keep turning, I'm asking him, hey, Jesus, would you, would you grow in me an understanding of what you've done so that I love you more, that my heart is transformed and I trust you? Because sin is a baseline distrust in God. The reason why you love something else is you think it's going to provide for you. That's the baseline temptation in the garden. This fruit will make you happy. This fruit will make you satisfied. This fruit will fulfill you and satisfy you, right? And so we take that thinking it's going to give us what we need. The lie is you need something you don't have and you should take matters into your own hands. The opposite of that is to say, Jesus, you have what I need. And so would you grow my love for you? Would you grow my affection for you? I'm acknowledging your sacrifice. I'm thanking you for what you've done. And now I'm asking you to grow my love and trust in you. So these other loves fade away. So the thing I've longed for my whole life actually loses its power and grip on me. And you become the one who I actually long for. And then final step, I get to actually obey and head this direction in faith by the Spirit. Not perfectly, not in a way that now makes me righteous, but in a way that says what, what I was longing for that way that I thought was going to give me power and approval and comfort and control that I've been motivated by for so long that plays itself out in these words or actions. Now I get to actually ask the Spirit of God to grow and change and transform. I get to ask the God of the universe who died in my place, who I'm saying thank you to and, and, and growing in my love and trust of him to lead me in ways of righteousness that actually are in line with his heart and his will. It's the things like the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit bearing inside of me obedience towards God. Repentance is not just saying sorry. And you, and you can't. Gosh, you can't, right? It's not a formula. It's not like one right way, but it's like just a little bitty bounce on a trampoline. Oh, oh what, what if, friends, you could dig down deep? Kids, you know what it's like to like dig deep and have that huge super bounce where you're like through the sky and it just feels so amazing like you're flying? If you can go through and own the behavior and the motivation behind it and the love and worship behind that, and at a pivotal moment, rather than committing never to do it again or saying you're not that person or, or even just saying it didn't work or being sad, turning to Jesus and trusting him because he identified with you in his baptism. He lived the perfect life. He died in your place so you could be free. You say, Jesus, thank you for that. Would you grow a deep love and trust in you? And would you help me actually now pursue what you call me to? There's a, a depth to that kind of of repentance. So, so when we stop for a second, we look at a passage where, where Jesus was baptized and didn't have to be. And we say, why, why did he do that? He, he did it to make it possible for you and I to actually be forgiven and free. So we have the permission, the ability, the, um, the desire, the longing to actually be more honest, to be as honest about our own hearts as God was, who said, actually, hey, this thing is so messed up 
The depth of your sin is so bad that you actually need me to die in your place if you're ever going to have any hope of being forgiven. You can't do this through just reform and new ideas and read some books and new commitments. It's so deep. It's at the worship level, which is why a new king came to remind us of his kingdom so that our hearts could be turned back towards him. And then when he says, hey, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, now these fruits of the Spirit are actually in line with that. If what I was doing this direction meant I didn't trust God, I was trying to build my own way, this direction is actually trusting God and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you to provide for me. And, and that's scary sometimes. It feels lonely sometimes. I was a youth pastor for a long time in Wichita, and, and I had lots of students that were faithful in our youth group, and they were super active, and they went away to college and just blew apart. And normally they would kind of come back around at some point, but, but we would sit down and talk over Christmas break, and, and they would say, when I was in high school in a youth group, man, it was like, it was cool to be in the church. It was neat to be in friendships. When I was involved in the things of God, I actually felt close to people. I got to college, and to be faithful to God was to be alone. My entire dorm is just drunk and naked, and now I don't, I'm by myself. If I don't do that, I'm all by myself. And so the desire to be with people led me to something else. And, and there's a way that we can stop and just be honest that I'm motivated by things that I actually get a chance to be healed from. Things I've actually longed for and I've looked to other substitutes for that now Christ can actually give to me. And I'm not saying that obedience is easy. This little trampoline is not a, a day in the park. We're not like a sky zone Christian where like everything's just always happy all the time. We're just flipping around. It's actually war. What I'm trying to describe with these, these students who went to college is like, man, it's hard. It's sad. The same kind of grief that Jesus would experience, the disciples would experience, the persecution that happens when followers of Christ throughout history have stood for truth. What happens in social media when you stand and say, hey, there's another king? Forget Democrat, Republican, Libertarian. There's a whole other king. And the outcry that happens from that, that's the kind of loneliness that you're willing to actually endure. I'm not saying it's a sky zone deal or this trampoline park. I'm saying as you follow after God, then he's the one who actually gives you what you need. And it's not a one and done because you're easily distracted and you turn back around and the pain is real. And so you start going this way again. And the great news is that account is so full, you can go, ah, there it is again. Man, I'm motivated by things I should be motivated by. I love things that are actually never going to satisfy. Jesus, you died in my place. Would you give me a deep love for you? Would you grow my gratitude for you? And would you help me actually obey? And then you take one step, and you're right back around, which is why Jesus had to come and die. He didn't come to make us amazing. He came to make us forgiven. So that in his death, we could be free. I think that's what repentance is about. I think it's something that we do our entire life. And, and those kind of steps, again, like, I don't know, read another book, you'll get 19 steps or three steps, something way more simple. But for me, it helps me in my heart to go, what am I doing when I repent? I'm turning away from this thing I thought was going to satisfy, and I'm turning back towards Jesus. And, and what's happening in my heart when that takes place? And so actually, I prayed for you this week, and I, if that's at all helpful, like, I wonder, like, if you could journal that. I wonder if you can just like journal those little steps. Or I wonder if you need to walk around your, your bedroom at night by yourself and just kind of, kind of do this number. Of like, this is the thing that happened. That's where it came from. That's what I loved. And whew, Jesus, thank you. Would you grow my affection for you? Would you help me to trust you? Would you help me actually follow you? Would, would you physically actually do something that would reflect your heart in a way that you could be drawn close back to God? Not to be forgiven for the first time, but to remember the forgiveness, right? The money's already there in the account. And maybe I could just put a caution on this or a a little warning label. We tend to make formulas and rituals out of everything, and so I don't mean for this to be something that binds you up and traps you. Repentance is not steps that you follow. It's more about a reflex 
and a gravitational pull. It's more about a reflex when you realize, wait a second, this actually promised me life, but it actually tastes like death to stop in that moment and not keep going, but stop and have a reflex to go, oh, and I've left my first love, and he's welcomed me back home. Let me be the prodigal that comes back and says, man, I know where I can find food and I can find help. There's a reflex to return to God. And far from consistency or being perfect or amazing or never messing up or not struggling for decades or years, there's this gravitational pull to repentance, pulling us back to the heart of God, even as we remember what Christ has done for us, right? For Christ to identify with our sins Romans 2 says it's his kindness that leads us towards repentance. There's a gravitational pull as we remember the love of God to bring us back into this awareness of what he's done for us, how he forgave us, which has a way of eroding those lies that God's holding out on me and I need something outside of him to make me happy. When I can remember, no, he died for me. He gave me everything I needed. He actually fully satisfies and he's the one who promises me life. Remembering that as a gravitational pull and as a reflex, as as a habit, actually reminds us of what's true so we step away from sin. Which, friends, is why we take communion every week. Some of you guys are wondering, like, are we still doing this? Like, I thought this was like a fad we're going to do. When are we going to stop taking communion? We're taking communion every week to, to go through these steps. And so that we get down here to the, to the little baseline at the spot, communion is that pivot point where you hold in your hands a little wafer that represents the broken body and the blood that represents, uh, or the cup that represents the shed blood. And you say, oh, that's my hope. And it's been a heck of a week with lots of things that I wish were different. He died in my place to make a way for me to actually now be loved. And I can thank him. And I can actually now help me, ask him to help me apply and move forward. So, so communion is this reflex. It is this gravitational pull. And so I want us to do that now. Jesus died in our place. He identified with us even through his baptism. What we're going to see in the rest of the book of Matthew is the ways that he's done that. How he lived our life. The next couple of chapters have a beautiful demonstration for us of Jesus actually standing and doing what we didn't do in our place so he could purchase our forgiveness and grace. And in that spot, what we realize is that God's made a way for us for our count to be full so that we can be forgiven. So I would love for you to proverbially pull out a check. You just like in your heart and mind, like open up your checkbook. And I don't know what happened this week. I don't know how many zeros need to be on that check. I don't know what what took place. And maybe it's not just this week. Maybe you look all the way back to 2020. You look back all the way back to the last decade. I pray for you guys who are in your 80s thinking about places where you've been stuck for 50 and 60 years. Hey, there are enough zeros in your account because of the blood of Christ to cover over all of that. Would you just in your mind kind of like as as an exercise, pull out your checkbook and go, Jesus, need you to pay for this. Thanks that you already paid for this. Thanks that you, I've already put this into my account. Would you take a moment, just bow your head for a second. I know it's kind of strange, and if I've totally lost you in the illustration, just pray wherever you want to pray. It doesn't matter, but I'm trying to, trying to give you a way to think about this. Would you just emotionally pull out a checkbook? You know that little memo line on the check where you can write like what it's for? Don't tell anybody else, but would you just realize Christ already knows, he's already died for it. Would you just, in your own heart, kind of write in that memo line? I don't know how many zeros there need to be, but there's enough in your account. Do you thank him for that? And so that you remember this is not just a fairy tale. It's not just a nice idea. It's not just comforting thoughts. It actually is a reality that Christ purchased for you. Would you pick up that little cup? We're going to take communion together this morning at the same time. So gluten-free ones have that little chalice look to them. The purple ones are the regular ones. 
Take a second. It's kind of difficult, but peel back that top little layer if you're a follower of Jesus and, and open up that little wafer. Christ came to identify with your full humanity. He had a real body. He lived a real life. He died a real death on a real cross so you could be forgiven and free. Would you take that little wafer? I'm having a hard time getting mine out. I'm with you. If you're struggling, I'm with you. Take that little wafer. Hold it in your hand and say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, breaking your body so that I could be forgiven. Would you take and eat? Scriptures say that he had a cup there that he said is a symbol of his blood shed for us. Would you peel back that next little layer? Would you drink that juice as a reminder of Christ's blood that died, was shed for your forgiveness? We're going to sing one more song. Would you let your heart be full of what Christ has done for you and thank him? Let me just pray over you now and then we'll sing together. Jesus, you are glorious and good. You are so much better than any other competing love that we could ever put our hope in. Thanks that even uh, though we wander and drift, you chose to die for us. And thanks that your sacrificial death because you were the eternal God of the universe puts enough in our account for us to be forgiven and free. God, would you let my friends, even with a taste still in their mouth, would they taste the goodness of what it means to be your children and to be forgiven? And God, I pray now for those in the room who wouldn't call themselves followers of Jesus, would you speak to them? Would you speak of, of a way for them to be atoned for and made right and be healed? Uh, would you stir faith in them? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.